You're listening to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast about how we have to be aware of us reaching that point before we reach that point in these predominantly white institutions, because that is not safe for us. It's not safe for them. It's not healthy for us. And once you've reached that point, it's like there's no return. So it's like that care. We have to acknowledge it in ourselves, but also each other. Because when we see one another going down that path, you got to catch them real quick before they have nothing left. You know what I mean? Like we got to get to each other first because they will just suck you dry. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihood since 2017. And today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 15th of September, 2021 with Jessica Gaynell Moss. Jessica Gaynell Moss, born in 1987, is an artist, curator, custodian of Black art, and creator of platforms and spaces that invest in and support Black artists. Melding her dedication to making art, supporting artists, and developing more equitable and just policies, Jessica's creative practice and projects transcend any one medium, discipline, or field, coalescing fine art with real estate development, institution building, and philanthropy. Beyond that, she runs her own artist consultancy, curates exhibitions and performances, regularly leads art talks and studio critiques, serves on the leadership boards of various cultural entities, and is a frequent speaker on panels on the subjects of artist support, advocacy, and stewardship. Jessica received a bachelor's in fine art from Carnegie Mellon University in 2009, a master's in arts administration, policy, and management from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, or SAIC, in 2015, and graduated from the University of Pittsburgh School of Law in 2018. I met Jessica at some point when we were both in graduate school at SAIC, maybe around 2013, and then we've been bringing each other into one another's projects since. I spoke with Jessica over Zoom while we were both at home. The audio quality for this season is varied, so remember that the transcripts for all of these conversations are available on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com. Our conversation was two hours and 15 minutes long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you in at the beginning. It's funny how, and it seems like you do a lot, I mean, it seems like you do so many things that are public facing, but Mm -hmm. like, how do you like have compassion for your audience knowing that like even if they are interested and are a part of the conversation you're trying to have like they may just not show up for Mm -hmm. you know capacity reasons which I feel like you can deal with in terms of trying to think through your own accessibility but also sometimes just for absolutely no reason at all maybe they're just like on another thing doing their thing you know I I mean totally And in working in and with communities, this is often what happens, right? You meet folks where they are and you can't ask people to always come to you. That's just, we know that's flawed, right? I think the huge um, kind of light bulb moment that a lot of people have in working with and in communities is like that realization, like, oh, people aren't going to always come to my party, you know? And I think there are some moments of learning around that. If you have your party consistently, people will come to it eventually, you know, and we've seen that with some programs um, like my space in Charlotte, the artist residency, that's it's called the roll up. Um, And we invite artists to stay for about a year, uh, six months to a year. We pay them 15 to $30,000 supply and material budget, a car, 
food and meal stipend, um, you know, the whole gamut. Uh, and we don't ask them to do programming, but it's inevitable. You know, the folks who we invite uh, to participate as residents already have some kind of like deep dedication to black community as a part of their practice. And um, it's kind of like one of the um, metrics in which we consider when inviting artists to the program. Like, do you have a commitment to your community and is it actually visible? Like, is it a part of your practice and not just a part of your performance, you know? Um, And for example, we had a resident, Shan Wallace in 2019 from Baltimore, Maryland. And Shan set up every, um, the last Monday of every month at the public library to do free portraits. And in the beginning, you know, folks who were just in the library kind of benefited from the program. And then the next month, you know, kind of doubled in, in scale. And then as the months continued, there were like lines of people waiting to get their photographs taken. And I think it was that consistency, like we know, the last Monday of every month, Shannon will be there. It'll be free program. The whole the whole family can participate. It's at the library where you're probably already, you know. Um, and so we saw some success in that program. But also, I was just actually talking to my dad about this. He's in a fraternity. He's Omega Sci-Fi. And he was explaining the difference between um, men and members, which is problematic. But uh, <laughs> how he was defining this distinction was that there are um, uh, there's more power in eight men than there are in 800 members. And what I deduce from that is, you know, often in programming that we do as a part of our work, Kelly, um, you never know who's going to show up. And sometimes it can be five people and sometimes it can be 500 people, but I'd so much rather have five engaged people participate rather than have an audience of 500 people who are, um, you know, on their phone or disassociation and somewhere else or like thinking about, you know, other things, not being really present, not being really um, part of the experience. And so I was like maybe a dad nugget that he just dropped off this morning that's been kind of relevant already. Yeah, I've been thinking about that, you know, also just like your insistent, you know, um, cultivation of, of, you know, Black spaces, um, as I think you, you said on the website. You know, what did something like, trigger that or like was that or like is when you know you on your website talk about 2007 Pittsburgh the creation of that space you know how how are you thinking about kind of this the spaces that you're attempting to create within the art world that potentially could be more supportive of you know in this in this case you know black people black women black you know, women mothers? I think like, um, what is this field of dreams? Kevin Costner, if you build it, they will come like Wayne's world, you know, like this. (laughs) Uh, I think that's a part of it, but really that's a joke. Um, I was at SAIC, I don't know, maybe it was like first year. And our classes were small within the program. It's like maybe six students. Um, And 
I, I was on the same ship that I'm on now, you know, like, how can we get free? And I remember one of my colleagues in the class who identified as Latina um, asked me why I was advocating so much for Black people and not for people of color in general, that the energy and the vigor um, that I was placing on this particular group could benefit uh, arguably like the entire population, right? Which I received as um, constructive and an opportunity to reflect before um, responding. Like, yeah, that's a good point. Um, And I hear you, but I am not you and I don't understand your fight. You know, like I stand next to you. I hope that we can stand next to, to each other and be accomplices in this work. Um, but I can never speak from your perspective. I can only speak from my own. And it took me so long to get that language and that clarity that I can be a support, but I have to be, uh, as an organization, I have to be so clear about my mission, you know? And my mission is about us getting free. And I have to constantly stay focused on reaching that destination. And in doing that work, it has also become apparent that nobody else is going to do it but us, for us. It, it has to be us doing it. And all of the other things, you know, like I believe in intersectionality, right? Like all of these things can exist at once. It's a yes and. But what is incredibly, what I found incredibly important throughout this journey is um, being in community, like having that tribe of um, like-mindedness, like um, some kind of cultural understanding, right? Like a competency, a competency, um, like a, this this kind of universality, you know, like there are things that immediately connect us, Kelly, even though we are so different. Um, and it is so awesome being in a space where you feel that connection with someone and it is just inherent and often doesn't even need to be articulated. You just feel it, you know? And there are moments where I'd be in spaces like that and I could feel that. And it and it, it just it became so, um, it just illuminated that that was unique and that I didn't have that in every space. And I saw my peers also in those shared spaces having that same realization. And that power that if that we that our energies felt when we could have these shared spaces that felt so safe, um, and were ours, and we can make them up, that felt like it was moving along in that direction of finally reaching this uh, step towards that freedom that um, seems to be something that we are all craving. It looks different, but we all know that it's this way. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, the power that and the energy that 
that just vibrated in, in being in some of those spaces felt just really inspiring. And it became so much more urgent to have those spaces. And an acknowledgement that, you know, none of, no one of us are ever doing this work and creating these spaces alone. This, the space is built based on the people who inhabit the space. It, it's the people always, not even necessarily the physical space. And so again, like that importance of the tribe, you know, for us to gather. And this is not also like, you know, it's not, it's not new. You realize that the, those spaces are often just like inherently blackness, right? Like I think about my mom's kitchen, which is a gathering space and looks so different. It can be so, it is a transformative space. Um, but it is a community gathering space, right? And I'm sure that you have had something very similar in your life uh, that feels like a space like that. You know, uh, it's like gathering around art, gathering around food, gathering around conversation, right? Like these are things that Black people just do and have done historically. And there's a reason why we continue to, to center those spaces and to need those spaces. And those spaces are such a threat to whiteness um, that that also underscores the urgency of why it is so necessary to continue to reproduce more and more of those spaces, but also protect the ones that do exist. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm like, <laughs> I've been thinking about this a lot. And so, you know, I'm just wondering about your, like, you know, you starting these organizations, you know, um, versus you working for like, you know, rebuild or working for, you were talking about the Pittsburgh foundation. Like, what does it mean to kind of have your own things, build your own things in the way that you mean to build them, you know, versus tying yourself to other people's projects and other people's institutions. I appreciate this question. It's a challenge. Um, have you seen Candyman? Oh my God. So the problem is, is that I know I need to see it. I know I need to see it, but I um, can't deal with scary movies. It's like, you do need to see it, but yes, it is scary. <laughs> and I also have been, there's been a couple of instances where I've said this to somebody like, have you seen the movie? And they're like, what? And I've had to say it twice. And I'm like, you have to hear me this time because I'm not going to say it again. I'm not taking any chances. <laughs> like, I'm too scared. <laughs> um, but anyway, I'm going <laughs> to say something about the movie, but it's not a spoiler. You know, so many of our homies from Chicago have work in the movie. And that so much of the movie is about the art world, right? Like, that's not giving anything away. Um, I went to go see it this past week with a bunch of colleagues who a have work in the sh in the movie or b work in the art world, and there were a number of 
jokes, I guess, I don't know, like landings in the movie that were felt like they were for us. And um, it might have, might have hit somebody different if they didn't work in this field. And one of them was a joke that was made. And again, this is not giving anything away, but there was a joke that was made in the movie where it talked about a curator working inside of an institution to advocate for change. And everyone in the theater laughed. <laughs> like it was like a universal laugh. And it kind of, you know, it took me aback for a second because it was like, oh, this is just such an understanding that this thing that we say that we're constantly doing and advocating for and try, you know, like reaching for and trying to work for, um, like down to the bones, right, uh, is impossible so much that we are laughing about it in this horror movie that just came out, right? Like that was like a moment that I've been processing, like, wow, the audience laughed at that, you know? Because this is an argument that I make all the time. Like I do the work within these institutions um, and it is a, a slight needle shift, it feels like every time. And is that slight needle shift enough? Is it worth it? it I mean, it depends on what it is. These are questions that, that I think we have to ask with each project, right? Which e with each um, proposal that comes across our desk that I ask for our time and labor, how much of myself am I willing to give to this work for just the slightest move, the slightest shift of a needle? You know, I think in some way, um, I think in some way it's always worth it because they're going to keep whiting no matter what. So at least we can make it a little bit spicy for a little bit. Right. Um, in like the slightest way, because there will be another Kelly that comes to Oxford and we don't want that Kelly to have the same exact experience. Right. And so it's often like doing the, that slight, it's worth that slight shift for future us, right? Like this is um, a belief. This is a school of thought, but also fuck them. Cause it's apparent that y'all don't want me here. And, and that is, and I heard it's heard, right? It's like the Trump sign on your lawn, heard that. Thank you for letting me know. And now that I know it's clear and it's cool. Cause I'd rather know. <laughs> I'd rather see the white hood and know up front that that's what it is that's happening here than have to guess or for you to act like a white lib and then you got the hood in your closet. Just let me know up front <laughs> and fuck you. And I'm just going to do my thing over here. Right. Like I go back and forth. Um, and I don't think it's one. I think we have to diversify, but it's about you and how much you're willing. Like, you know, we have to pay to play. So how much are you willing to pay to do this? And I also think it's okay for us to change our mind. Like you can be in it and then be like, oh, that's enough. And then you can always step out, you know, but holding true to your principles and your own integrity um, and your worth because you and your energy and your time are worth and you no, Kelly, I'm sure you've had experiences when you've been operating in a PWI and you're like, your energy is just like a vampire has just depleted everything. 
nothing, right? Like you have nothing left to give. And we don't want to be that. I have a girlfriend who um, parties and I, she parties. And there was one time, only one time where like we were at a party and I looked at her and she was on the couch and she just like, (laughs) it was as if everything had been sucked out of her. And I was like, you cool? And she was like, she looked at me and I'll never forget this look. And she was like, I have nothing left. And I was like, let's go home. And we went home. We have to be aware of us reaching that point before we reach that point in these spaces, because that is not safe for us. It's not safe for them. It is not healthy for us. And once you've reached that point, it's like, there's no return. So it's like that care, um, we have to acknowledge it in ourselves, but also each other. Because when we see one another going down that path, you got to like catch them real quick before they have nothing left. You know what I mean? Like we got to get to each other first because they will just suck you dry. And, and that is, and feel no remorse and no empathy. They will just let you do it to yourself. So we got to, I really do believe that we got to catch each other and that's why we got to see each other, you know? Yeah. 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 So real. Um, you were talking about, right. Like what does it mean to have residents that like have as a part of their art practice, this, this participatory gene or something like that you know this like um feeling of responsibility over their community and a willingness to take on that responsibility as a joy and how did that translate to like us getting leaned on and like what does that kind of mean to like watch the institution suck us dry because we're the ones that show up for the conversations that need to be had. And I think I'm especially interested in that in terms of like consistency and stewardship, you know, this consistency that you're talking about in terms of like your, um, you know, artists and residents, like, you know, she was there like that one day a month, you know, and she was able to kind of create a community, you know, out of the consistency that she provided as well as her, you know, um, art. Um, and then like the stewardship that is also required over long periods of time, which I want to talk to you about in terms of, you know, the roll-ups, the bulls shine. And, um, what that means to start these projects that you have to steward, you know, Mm -hmm. and what do you do when you have that moment where you're like, you know what, I'm out. Like, I just have to, to like rewind a little bit, you know, take a pause, like, and how do you not compromise this kind of, you know, consistency and stewardship, like, um, and how do you also not compromise um, the ability to participate in conversations that you care about um, by deciding to take care of yourself? Mm. That was a lot of, things to touch on. Let's see. Um, Yeah, I think 
people, not projects always. Like that is the pillar that all of it is built on. Like that is the one, it's people. And I feel like across this sector, we often forget that. And we forget the value of the artists. It's so much tied to the artist's labor and like what the artist can produce. And I'm so less interested in that. I really have had so many folks invest in me and like really make a point to check on me and help me and guide me uh, and mentor me that I see so much value in that. Mm. And I know that uh, like without their shoulders, that I would not be, I would not have access to so many of the things that I feel like I have access to. And therefore I feel like this responsibility to Stuart, um, that next generation of makers and thinkers, because what has been done for me, it's like a responsibility. Um, and so much of the work, so much of these projects are keeping that in mind. Like how, how do we make it? I mean, and being a mom now is a whole other part of that, right? Like I'm just constantly thinking about how it can be better for her in, in every situation or how I can make, right? Like molding a, a mind, it's crazy. How I can prepare her, better prepare her for situations that I know that she will come in contact with. That will not be pleasant. Um, how can I best prepare her? You know, how can I make sure that the same issues that, like I just said, Kelly is having now, future Kelly doesn't have later, right? Like this is the whole thing. I think about how um, if if I would have seen. You know why I like Takara so much, Takara Mallard at SAIC? Because I came into SAIC, SAIC and my cohort was lit with Black women. There were four of us out of like 12, which was remarkable. I was like, oh, okay, we in here. But I saw Takara and Takara was the year before me. And I was like, okay, I feel safer. It's like when I get on a public transit, like a bus and there's a Black lady bus driver, I'm like, hmm, I'm safe. <laughs> Like, it's just, there's, uh, I feel safe around Black women. And um, I want to make other Black women also have that feeling that we got each other. And that when we see each other, there's a, a certain level of care that is here between us. And um, I think that's why we do the work. And I think sometimes it can be really small, Kelly, like thinking about the question that you just asked to, like, uh, how can I utilize this consultant role that I'm going to be in for three months to hire three Black women? Um, if I'm in a situation and I know somebody is looking for a 
a particular painting that is of this scale, how can I introduce them to three black painters who they wouldn't have known before? You know, like it could be small, um, but it is still happening. You know, um, somebody's looking for a cater. Let's hire a black vendor, you know, like these types of things that are um, gestures, but can ultimately lead to something much larger um, or evolve. I was just doing this project with um, the city of Pittsburgh and they're this is so tangential and I don't even want to talk about it, but <laughs> they're um, reinstalling this piece of artwork, uh, public art that is in their permanent collection that is a symbol of hate for a lot of people because it was previously installed in a neighborhood that was in transition um, that displaced hundreds and hundreds of Black people and Black families and is made by this white artist. This isn't enough about it. Um, and uh, part of my role is to talk to Black artists about it. And I was like, this is it. Let's ask them for $20,000 to do one piece in response. Like, let's come up with ideas. How can we, how can we use the position that we're in to leverage what, what we want, what our needs are, what our goals are? Um, let's hear it. And I came to the city. I'm like, this is what they're probably going to ask for. Be prepared. Da, 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 da. And then we get on the line with the artists and they're like, we're mad. And I'm like, I know we're mad, but like, what are we going to do about it? And like, we want to be mad. And I'm like, that's, that is your act of resistance. And I respect it. And if you want to like, you know, there are again, so many ways to play this. If you don't want this white money, that's totally fine. But this white money is on the table and you could take it if you want it. Just kind of have to have an ask. I think that's how we often operate in these white spaces, Kelly. If we go to Oxford and we're like, look, we'll do that, but pay us. Hmm. They might pay you, but just ask. I feel like so many people drop or fumble a bag because they don't have a real ask. And sometimes your ask could be like, I don't want you to be here. I just want you to give me the money. <laughs> that, you know, just like have an ask, be really real. Think about what it is that you want. It's just a means to an end. But also, are you willing to do whatever it is that they're going to ask you to do to take that? There have been events that we've had at the roll-up before. That is, the roll-up is a Black space. It is Black artists that come in. It is Black neighbors. We're in a predominantly and historically Black community. It is Black. Um, and we advertise events on our social media and not all of our followers are black but some white people show up to our events and we politely tell them that this is not for them um and some people you know people receive it in different ways there have been moments where we've had funders before come to events because they want to see and we tell them that they're not welcome um and some receive it and some ask questions and i'm also so happy to answer your questions um, and point you to a public event, maybe that's happening at the library downtown or uptown that you can come to in a week. But this is not for you. And I'll be really clear about that. Um, I think that I also say that publicly in an effort to empower my team. 
so that when I'm not at events or not at spaces or it's not a roll up thing or it's not a, one of our or they're in their own world, that they also know that they can do that. Um, that they can feel power and agency in claiming what is theirs. And that can be time or space. Um, but it, that empowerment, I think, is really key. And that goes to us, uh, that visibility of ourselves that I was alluding to earlier, like why that is so important. Because we also learn how to navigate in these spaces. And so I think a huge part also in us doing this work in these white spaces is so that we can know that we're not alone in these feelings, like we are not alone. And the feelings that we're feeling are not unique to us, that they are in, intentionally built into these structures and these systems to make us feel this way and to make us want to fold and not participate so that they can continue to be uh, void of us and our voices. I was looking at your CV and it seems like what you've gotten five grams in 2021. Like what is, how, yeah. how is did you right? do this? Can you teach me a class on this? Like I need to know this information. No, you already know it. Wow. You're right. I did. I've done well this year. Um, with grants, writing but the thing about it kelly is once you do it right once and you get a big one then you just pull the language it's so much easier once you get a big one and once you get a big one too it like legitimizes it to everyone else that you're worth investing in it this the filling the like philanthropy is just fucked it really is and it is like a popularity contest and um whatever we can talk about that later your question was about how do you get money? Um, what my job has been for maybe the past five years is that every day I work on three grants. This doesn't mean that I'm applying to three new ones every day. This just means I'm dedicating three in the queue at all times. So as soon as one goes out, literally another one comes in. And so if you imagine, I do this every day, um, I get more rejection letters than I think like a, a normal person should <laughs> like have to be confronted with. Like it is constantly um, letters of rejection in my inbox, up in my phone, like it is just a part of it. And it is not a personal, right? It's not about me. It is maybe a superpower to be in that position and know that I'm not taking any of these personally. It's not about me. It's just that I'm not using the specific dialect that this person wants to hear me speak in. So really it's about how can I figure out what your language is so I can say it in your language. And that is often unique to the funder. But once you get it and it clicks, and sometimes it really feels like you're saying the same thing, but you really just have to, like they maybe said something just differently. You're like, what if we had a retreat for black moms? And they're like, or it could be an event that supports black mothers. And you're like, yeah, an event that supports black mothers, you know, like it, um, 
you, once you learn that, then it just becomes so much easier. And, and the relationship is also key, right? Like often with these big funders, you have a program officer or something and the program officers don't always stay with the foundations, but they often stay within philanthropy. And when you've had a good working relationship, those relationships stick. Um, and there could be future opportunities regardless of what foundation they might be with, you know? So I always think that it's important to continue those relationships and stay in contact with your funders. Um, I also think that uh, advice for funding is know how to talk about your projects in like a cute way, in like a little bit longer way, in like a way that's like digestible to the layman, in a way that could say include all of the buzz, you know, like how are the diff, know how to say your thing in all of the different languages too, so that depending on whom you're speaking to, you can tailor it, right? Um, that's really key. And uh, I think maybe what grad school taught us, me, is how to talk about yourself because you're just constantly talking about yourself the whole time. Like every class you have to introduce yourself and like what you're in, you know, did you find I, that is just, I feel like a part of it. And it felt like when I graduated, I was so prepared to be in a space and, and um, very, um, succinctly talk about who I am and my work. And that feels like a real superpower because you see a lot of people really struggle with, you know, like, let's build, I got these ideas, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. And um, it is so different when somebody comes to you with a very clear ask. And um, so I encourage people to have a clear ask about what they're doing and know how to talk about their work. Um, yeah, that's maybe some good funding advice. Also, I think, okay, here's here's the last one. This is a good one. Um, I, as someone who has worked in philanthropy and sat at the other side of the table, I for so long felt like, and I've had roles in development, I've had roles in fundraising and stewardship, you know, like I, I thought I could ask for money. But when you're sitting at the other side of the table and it's your wallet, um, it, it just became so clear to me that money is really no issue. And that if you are going to ask for 5,000, you should ask for 20,000. Um, and if you're going to ask for 20,000, you should ask for a hundred thousand because the way that these people think about money is just so like COVID-19 happens and all of a sudden one foundation has $5 million that they're willing to contribute to the initiatives. $5 million comes out overnight. And all, and all the staff is like, wait, <laughs> where, where did this money come from? And we're scraping in our own individual budgets trying to like pool money for just like this initiative or just this, you know, to support black artists. And they're like, this is all the money y'all got this year. Make it work. We can't wait to see the black artists that you uplift. COVID-19 happens $5 million. So then it's like, oh, oh, this, this bag is so big. It is so big. It is so much larger than I can even envision. And all of our hands could really be in it. But these folks are just so keen on keeping it here and hoarding it and preventing and dictating what goes where at what time. Um, and so willing 
to really deputize any of that or really um, um, disperse it in ways that could be really helpful, right? Um, or empowering. This is just a part of this uh, gatekeeping. And so I have no problem uh, asking for more money than even what you think is what you should be asking for. Also, um, when I was working at the Pittsburgh Foundation, one of the things that we started, as it, which is a precedent now, is that um, each applicant for just filling out an application gets $500, it's a small grant. And that threw the whole foundation upside down. Um, and this is what I mean, slightest needle, right? Like the little tiniest thing, 500, what do we have like less than 200 applicants every year? It's nothing, you know, it is nothing to them. And the staff, when our team was arguing that this is what, you know, like this is something that we'd like to do, um, senior leadership at the foundation was like, $500, it's going to be embarrassing. They're going to feel disrespected if we send them a check for only $500. What are, what can you even do with $500? Like how much does a gallon of milk cost at the grocery store these days? You know, so out of touch, just so... It's like Kanye now, you know, like stop trying to talk to us like you're the people. You're so removed from the people. You don't, you, you know, it's just, it's complete disconnect. Like you live in such a different reality where you don't understand the value of money, which is what your whole career is built upon. So what are you even doing, you know? And then we got all of these letters from people who were like, $500, I was able to pay my rent. Like I paid a student loan deposit. Like I, I was able to contribute to start the project, you know? And like this influx of letters came in. So happy to compile them into one PDF and send them directly to that senior leader who was like, oh my goodness, wow. Well, you guys, you were right. My word. <laughs> You know, it's like uh, so disconnected. This is a theaster thing. Don't be afraid to ask for money. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I mean, so important. Don't be afraid to talk about it. You know, that way I can mm -hmm. hear these really important things from you about these things. Um, so you went to school in Pittsburgh and then you left Pittsburgh and then you came back to Pittsburgh. Um, what what's going on there? Like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about place and community and right. Like where can you build the things that you want to build? Who can you build them with? Where are they? Where do you need to be versus like, where do you want to be? Or mm -hmm. you know, I don't know. I've been thinking about some of those things. Yeah. Place is fucked. I think similarly about Pittsburgh, as a city with how you're feeling about Oxford. Um, this report came out in 2019 from the mayor's office and the University of Pittsburgh that released all this data that we already know. Um, Pittsburgh is literally the worst city for black women to live in. Um, like as soon as we move away from here, our life expectancy increases. We have better access to employment. We live longer. Our air quality is better. Our children have better access to education. It is literally like 
like the report came out and it was like, what are y'all doing here? Clearly this is not for you. And I think a lot of black, in, on the table, everybody knew this information already. But when it comes back at you, and when white people start saying the things that you <laughs> have been feeling as fact, uh, it kind of hits different. And um, I think a lot of Black women receive that as, you're right, what am I doing here? I'm out. Um, and I think a lot of Black women saw that as, yeah, we've been known that and we're still working here and we're still going to keep doing the work. It's three generations of my family are from Pittsburgh, specifically the Hill District. Um, the Hill District is a historically Black community. Uh, August Wilson, Teeny Harris, Romare Beard, and all of them came from the Hill District. And Sugar Top is where my dad's side of the family is from. It's Upper Hill. It's like the very, it's the top. It's the very, like the whipped cream topping. And... Um, Sugar Top is adjacent. All of the Hill District has a very painful history. Like some black neighborhoods, period, no matter where your geography, have a long history of legal racial discrimination happening to them. And like taking some land displacement, like closing of schools, like all of the, you know, like this is not one unique black community. This is what's happening to us all across the country. And I think when that report came out and a lot of black women left, they're like, yeah, this is bad here, but I'm gonna go to Atlanta. I'm gonna go to DC. I'm gonna go somewhere else, LA, thinking that the situation will be different. But this whole shit is fucked. And no matter where you go, it's still going to be racist. You're still going to have to deal with bigotry. There's still going to be prejudice placed upon you based on your gender. You know, like it, you can't escape this no matter where you go. It is just like hate is just deeply woven into our society. And this is why also it is so important that if you're going to be in a space you carve out a space that is for you within that space. And so um, I think that that is mirrored in your experience as you've described in Oxford, in that it's fucked. So do I stay here and participate in the fuckery or do I leave where it's gonna be fucked up somewhere else? You know, that's kind of the choice <laughs> that you're that we're all um, having to operate in, um, because it doesn't get better anywhere else. You know, it is just, this is the world that we live in. So use what you got to make it as good as you can. Um, use the tools that you have to create the world that you want to see. Think about who and why you do the things that you are doing and have that be like, implanted on your frontal lobe to keep you focused on why and um what you're doing through all of the fuckery because it is everywhere you're going to be like deeply remorseful if you think that moving to LA you won't experience any bigotry or hate or prejudiceness you know in that based on the imaginary geography and the borders that are placed on this country, white people might treat you differently. Ha! 
ha, you are always the same to them. No matter where your physical body lands in space. You know, and I've experienced more hate and more prejudice growing up in Southern California than I have in North Carolina, you know. Um, and I think because a lot of it is I always see the hoods in North Carolina. Everybody just holds Bibles in Southern California. It's hard to know. <laughs> Rough. Um, but, you know, it's... Um... Yeah, like I said, I've been thinking about place, place a lot. And, you know, how do you think about place if it is the same place? Yeah. Um, I also think that the place is the people. Like, I don't, you know, I, when I was at the Arts Bank uh, in Greater Grand Crossing in Chicago, and I love that job. That was like a dream job. And people would walk in there immediately and, they, and I'd be like, so excited to engage people and show off all the collections and everything that is in the space. And then you're not from here, are you? And I'm like, why do you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm from here. <laughs> and then, I, you know, I'm not from there. It's, it's just because it was very apparent to people that I am not from the place. You, you, you think about community and what does it mean? Um, I'm claiming that space. I work in that space. I'm dedicated to that space but uh, people who were actually from there knew that I wasn't and I believe in watering yourself where you're planted and blooming where you've been seeded and it seems so important to do that work for my people in my community in places that are important to me and that's what brought me to Charlotte and what continues to bring me back to Pittsburgh um it hits different when it's for your own people you know yeah so last question did we talk about what you thought we would talk about or do you have any questions for me or is there anything else you'd like to say yes I did think we would talk about what we talked about um and yeah, I have one more thing I want to say. I have a project that um, I'm about to start next month where I'm converting one of the properties in the hill um, that right now functions as affordable housing. I'm going to turn it into a black Airbnb for artists. So luxury oasis in historic black community. That's the vibe. Um, all black vendors and contractors for the rehab of this space, um, black architects, black designers, and black artists will inhabit it when it's completed in, I think about a year. So um, this will be a space that you can visit when you come and um, you know, I am creating partnerships with different art organizations in the city so that also when they have black artists, like the Carnegie International, for example, they can stay in this space. Um, it's a two unit, two bedroom, one bathroom. Um, each one will have its own washer dryer and uh, its own library. 
I've gotten some artists to donate books. So they'll have libraries that are just dedicated to them in the space. Um, so you have some insight into different black artists and what their research is. And all of the work in the space will be uh, by black artists, interdisciplinary. And so I'm really excited about this. And I think it's just like a, the next iteration of this work, you know, like when you're making painting, you know, like another, it's just a continued exploration of the same subject matter. And so I wonder how this experiment will result, um, but I'm really excited about this next project. It's just so important to create these safe spaces for people. And then obviously, you know, to create employment opportunities to, you know, um, to see a need like, yeah, to create community in this way. Yeah, I mean, this along with all of your other projects just seem like so, so great. So thanks for talking to me about them. I really appreciate you and your time and your energy and having an opportunity to catch up. It's been a second. Um, I'm grateful for our continued friendship throughout all this time and opportunities to work together. You invited me to the ICA show and you were in Black Blooded. It's nice to also be in, in dialogue with you throughout your, your thesis. So keep me updated about ways that we can continue to support each other. I'm really proud of you. Ah, same, yeah, I'm really proud of you. Doing great shit. And let me know if I can ever help with anything, um, but also, I'm interested. So, you know, if you ever want me to be there to do a thing, like sign me up, you know, I like working with you and talking with you and what you're working on. So Same. yeah, we'll keep this going. Epilogue. On the 9th of December, 2022, Jessica wrote this to me. My curatorial project Shrine at Mattress Factory in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania will close on the 31st of December. I just wrapped up Art Basel 2022, showing work and curating an exhibition at PRISM, aka Black Basel. I'm getting ready to launch some new projects in partnership with the Pittsburgh Foundation, including launching a local wiki day so Black Pittsburgh-based artists can have a larger footprint. And I'm still working on my Black B&B in the Hill District, just secured another grant for 17000 Jessica Gaynell Moss is participating in Malcolm Peacock's piece at the 58th Carnegie International until April 1st, and her curatorial project, The Vault, featuring Black art from Black collectors' collections, will open at the Mint Museum in Charlotte, North Carolina, on July 1st. You can find links to these events in the episode notes on the project's website, thisthingwecallart.com, and you can find more information about Jessica and her work at jessieplain.com. This podcast was funded by the Oxford Research Center in the Humanities. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on Apple Podcasts, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden. The episode artwork was created by Julia Ratti, and the theme song was made by Alessandro Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd, Thanks so much for listening and tune in next week for my conversation with Shannon Stratton.